This is an ABC podcast. Rick Fenny has always been drawn to animals, big and small, but especially dogs and especially Kelpies. After a Huckleberry Finn boyhood, running barefoot through the bush and fishing with his dog, Rick began his career as a government vet in the Kimberley. He then set up his own practice, driving across the Pilbara, where Rick was often the only vet for thousands of kilometres. He treated working dogs, of course, and station animals, but also camels, racehorses and once a curious circus chimp. Rick's now writing the story of his life. The first volume is Red Dog Vet, Pip, My First Dog. Hi, Rick. G'day, Sarah. There's a photo of you in the book as a baby and your dad's holding you while also patting this massive Clydesdale. What was happening? Oh, there's a great family story behind that photo. I was um, apparently a pretty noisy little little brat and they uh, put me out in the orchard to um, get out of earshot and they had, they had me in a little, little playpen and I was apparently pretty angry about this and shook the playpen until it tipped over and then... Uh, got my freedom and I scampered off and they suddenly noticed the baby had stopped crying and eventually came looking for me and they found me under the feet of this massive Clydesdale who um, he could have trotted me and that would have been it uh, would be here today. Uh, anyway, this, my father you know, carefully picked me up and, and that photo was so poignant because I can actually hear him talking to the horse and stroking his nose and the horse is listening back and I'm looking on in amazement and he's telling... Socks, good boy, good boy for not treading on the baby. <laughs> what had brought your dad to Western Australia? Well, he was um, from the north of England and uh, at the uh, after the First World War, things were pretty tough up there. So he saw, somehow he had heard about the, the farms of Western Australia, well, Australia, wanted good, strong working boys who could uh, come and uh, work on farms. So he paid his... Um, one and sixpence, where it was for a for a passage. He had to pay it back, back by the way. He told me later, but he got a passage to Australia and a job down in the, uh, the south of Western Australia. And he he got to Perth and he um, he was looking for his own father who'd who'd come out in nineteen thirteen and then then practically practically disappeared. Um, so he wanted to solve that little mystery too. And so he, how did he track down his dad once he arrived in Perth? Well, his father was a, a, a tailor, a gentleman's tailor, and apparently was, he was doing pretty well because there weren't many tailors around, so we just asked the nearest pub, uh, any tailors around? They said, oh, yeah, old um, uh, Harry Fenney's got a place in, in Newcastle Street in, in the city, so we went in there and he marched in and... and Gave his father a piece of his mind. and He must have been completely shocked to see his son that he'd left on the other side of the world however many years before. Oh, absolutely. I can just, you can only just imagine how he felt that this suddenly this grown man walks in and chastises him and uh, uh, for leaving the wife and family and everything and going off and not coming back. Anyway, so he, he got that little job out of the way then he got on a train and he went travelled through the night down to a little town called... Well, it's, tall, it's Tamble Up, but he went even further than that to a siding uh, called Tulburn Up and, and he was taken out to the to the so-called farm. But and he told me the story. He said he couldn't work it out. He, he thought he was going to a farm, but next morning all he saw was trees. And he said to, the, to his host, where's the farm? And the guy said, well, uh, we've got to clear the land first. Here's an axe, here's a box of matches, here's a tent. Away you go, son. 
So not, not like Northern England. No, no, that's what he was, he was, he was imagining, rolling fields of, of, uh, of, of England, but it was a big bit of a shock. But then he, he loved it. He loved, loved the bush. He met your mum, who was a young school teacher, and, and they bought a farm, a little farm in the Perth Hills. How much freedom did you have to roam about there as a kid? Oh, look, total freedom. It was, uh, even though it was, that was a long time ago, I still remember it very, very well. That uh, had uh, all these, uh, this bush to play in and and uh, you know, paddocks and lots of animals and we'd just disappear into the, into the state forest and, and somehow found our way back. I don't know how, but uh, I think I've had dogs with us that probably took us back. But, yeah, it was just a lovely life. You and your, your mate Glenis, a neighbour, set off on an adventure one day when you were just four or, four or so. Where were you going? Well, just about all kids do this. They, they, if they've got older siblings who go to school, the little ones say, oh, I want to go to school too, and, and why can't I go to school? They don't understand it. So she had an older brother. I had an older sister who were at school. This, this, this magic place called school that, that everyone you know, aspires to. So one day uh, we, we set off, and it was, it was about oh, three miles away, but I knew, I knew the way through the... I knew a shortcut through the bush. Did you... Give anyone the heads up that you and Glynis were setting off to reclaim your brother and sister at school? Uh, no, we just quietly disappeared. My, my parents were in, in, in Perth and I think my sister, big sister, was looking after us, a teenage sister. So we just turtled off and and remember to this day I've still this this memory seared in my, in my mind of reaching the this little hill just overlooking Mundaring Primary School and could see all these kids sort of getting into buses and um, about to leave, and the the realization struck me that school was over. We'd we'd missed it. This magical <laughs> school was over for the day, so we had to turn around and, and walk home. And did anyone stop for you? Two little kids walking along the road on all that way back? No, because we we decided to go down the main road, which was Great Eastern Highway in those days, and we just walked along on on the um, the backs of the traffic and oblivious to uh, there were trucks sort of tooting us. I remember them tooting and. And someone yelled out, "Get off the bloody road!" And uh, we thought, "Oh, we, we, why? We, we walked along the roads. It's on our bare feet. The, the bitumen felt much better than the, the rocks. We stayed on the road." They must have been very worried about you at home. What happened when you made it back to the farm? Oh, I got the hiding in my life, which I also clearly remember. Uh, my father was probably more relieved than anything, but I remember being over his knee, and he, I, he gave me the mother of a of a of a belting. So didn't do that again. You and uh, he trusted each other well enough to dig a well together when you were still a, a young bloke. How do you do that, or how did you? Well, he did all. He he dug it and he he got down a certain way and he, he did it all by hand, and he was shoring up the sides of the well as he went with with timbers, but it was a bit of a laborious process because he had to climb down, uh, dig a bit, put it in a bucket, and then climb up his makeshift ladder and, and haul it up to the top, tip out the dirt and do it all over again. And, and I was sort of fooling around there. So he said, oh, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll put you down. You can, you can um, fill the bucket and I won't have to... You know, it'll save me a, a bit of a trip. And you know, all you've got to do is fill the bucket and I'll pull it up. And, and he, he let me down inside that well, standing inside the bucket, holding onto the rope. And it was the most terrifying experience of my life at that stage, I was, I was still before I went to school, so I was probably, you know, five or something. But it was absolutely 
terrifying. And what you could look up and just see the light in your father's face receding. That's all I could see, a little little, little um, square of blue sky with, with his face in it. But And I think it was just a... He was just testing me. He was just saying, you know, what I say goes and you got to trust me, Ricky. He said, trust me, I'll, you know, I won't, he won't die. And go down there. So it was. It was. It was a lesson in in trust. What was it like down the the bottom of that well? What did it smell like? Sound like? It was an indescribable smell. I can still smell it now. It's sort of a yeah, sort of musty, watery, gooey, uh, slushy sort of place. It just. It, it certainly got a, had a smell all of it all of its own. Your parents sold the farm in 1956, and the family moved to Albany. What new luxuries did that mean? Oh, lots and lots, because um, at Mahogany Creek, uh, we lived in a, an old mud brick cottage and with uh, no running water, no um, electricity. There was just a, 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 a lantern lit the place at, at night, uh, dunny out the back, wood stove and a kerosene fridge. And But that was, that was life. That was normal in the, the 50s. Then going to Albany, sort of in the late 50s, suddenly we were in a town and and you turn on a switch and the light came on. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> My mum got a washing machine instead of using the old copper out the back. And, yeah, it was, it was, it was really quite, uh, really good for her. Could you see the ocean from your place? Oh, 100%. We overlooked the, the harbour, Princess Royal Harbour in Albany, which is truly one of the, it's always been known as one of the greatest harbours in the world. It's a, it is a magical place. And that was our that was our playground at the harbour. You saw the southern aurora one evening. What yeah. was that like? Oh, that was just really, really beautiful. All these pinks and uh, greens and all those sort of lights all just wreathing around the skies. I only ever seen it once after that, and and uh, in the middle of the night, driving back uh, from Perth, suddenly I thought, oh, that's the aurora. I know what that's like. And, uh, but, yeah, it's, I don't know often you see it, but uh, I've been privileged to see it twice. It's, as you say, an incredibly beautiful harbour, but it was also an industrial port back then. What did that mean for the sounds and, and the smells of your childhood, Rick? What do you remember? Well, yeah, it was uh, dead right. There was the sounds of um, ships arriving and departing and like the mournful, mournful hoots they'd give to uh, say goodbye, Albany, and then you'd hear the... The, uh, the working boats sort of you know, dropping chains and, and ropes and splashes and, and a lot of the smells, a lot of smells. There was a meatworks uh, right on the harbour and that was pretty pretty famous for the, for the smell because there was like thousands of, of dead sheepskins hanging up, up, up to dry and the, in the summer easterly would sort of blow that uh, <laughs> up the main street. And, but, yeah, locals sort of said, you know, that's, that's normal, that's, you know, that's industry, that's... And the, the the local woolen mills used to set off its steam whistle at eight o'clock and five o'clock, and it was just there's a lot of sound and a lot of smells, and you could smell the ocean, smell the sea, smell the seaweed, smell all those things. So the place was um, yeah very very evocative of all those, those senses. Was whaling still happening while you were there? Oh, absolutely, yeah. But the uh, the whaling uh, chasers used to come into town, and and the the uh, all the guys used to. Uh, uh, you know, work in town and uh, work from town rather, and drink in town, and and uh, occasionally they'd actually uh, a whale would stray into the into the harbour, and and that they would uh, harpoon it in in the harbour, very very occasionally, but that did happen. Uh, but the whaling station was a little bit further out of town, and and everyone used to go out there when the 
when there was when whales were being processed. There was that meatworks that lent this the town its distinctive smell. You got a summer job there when you were at high school. What was that like? At the meatworks, yeah, that was that was great. I had to um, lift down all these these skins that had that had dried and stack them, and there'd be maggots falling out of them and oh. in, into your hair and oh, really? things like that. Oh, it was it was. Was, For a vet, that's nothing. Well, it was good. It was, it was good. Uh, good grounding in 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 uh, in being being very grounded in those sort of things. But one of our jobs was to to spray the skins with arsenic, which was apparently very dangerous. But no one else would do the job. But my mate and I, we, we thought, oh, what's arsenic? Well, well, then we sprayed each other with it a bit and oh, had a good old good old time. Oh, my goodness. Well, workplace health and safety was not what it, what it is now. It didn't exist for a long time. <laughs> what surprise did your sister Jo bring you for your 10th birthday? Yeah, well, that was the huge change in my life. In the middle of the night, she arrived. She'd driven down from Perth with a boyfriend in a, in a little um, MG, one of those 1950 models, and, uh, and she had a little puppy for me. And she brought it to me in the, the middle of the night. And again, the... The, that sense of of feeling this puppy and and smelling its its little close cropped furry head and and uh, to see this beautiful little creature that was going to be mine that was that was a life changing experience. Had you always wanted a dog? Well, I always wanted a brother, and um, and I just because I was the youngest, I had older sisters, and and I was just longed for a brother, and and I used to ask my parents, yeah, mum. You know, so and so's got a little brother. Well, can you get me a little brother? And 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 it was always there was the answer was don't ask that. You know, it's not going to happen. And cause my parents were forty five when I was born, so they were well into their fifties. And I was I was asking them this question. So uh, the puppy became my surrogate little brother. And <laughs> what did you and your canine little brother like doing together? Oh, we just did everything together, but. I'd usually get home from school and the first thing I'd do is you know, let him let him off the chain and he'd run around and, and I'd think, oh, yeah, I might go fishing today. It's a lovely afternoon and he would know. You know, he, That's when I first started to realise about telepathy. Didn't know what it was called then, but I think, how come the dog knows that we're going to go fishing? And he, he always knew. And I thought, oh, he maybe saw me you know, getting my, my fishing bag out or mixing up a, a bit of burley or getting some bait or something, but... He got real excited uh, when when I when I formed the thought that I was going fishing, and uh, yeah, we'd go down the harbour and have a great old time down there until it was dark. And my mates did the same thing. We, we it was sort of loosely supposed to be home by by dark, and I think all around Australia um, that was uh, the the go that kids could do whatever they liked, but they meant to be home for for tea long you know, by, by dark. Kelpies can be a fairly energetic kinds of dogs. What kind of character did Pip have? Well, yeah, he was certainly a big, strong Kelpie and I used to ride, ride my, my bike everywhere and we'd go for, for miles and he'd just he'd lap along beside him. He, he never seemed to get, get tired of that. We'd leave him behind on some of the, the big hills and he'd get a bit worried but he'd always catch up and one of the favourite places um, my mate and I used to go to was out to uh, Little Grove um, the Yacht Club, which is oh, I don't know, about five or six k's in this language, but it was a, it was a fair old drive right out there. So he'd gallop out there and uh, and we'd, we'd uh, be squidding out there and, and and come back home again. But there was no, never any question of the dog getting a getting a ride. He always used to run run behind. 
Before he was one, though, Pip got sick with the mange. What did your dad say? Oh, he's, he's, he knew what it was. He said, oh, yeah, it's, he's not going to get better. Maybe I think we should need to shoot him. And um, I was a bit, bit horrified. I was very horrified. But my father was a pretty practical sort of guy. And uh, anyway, it was, um, I, it was an awful case of mange because all his hair started falling out all over his... All over his um, around his muzzle and everything, but uh, so where did you try to find a, a diagnosis so that you could rescue this beloved well, dog of yours? Well, actually, I did make the diagnosis myself because I found these old magazines that were stuck up in a in like in the uh, the ceiling space of a farmhouse that we owned out of town, and and they had a little section at the back about uh, diseases of dogs, and and I had a feeling that I'll, I think I'll find find the answer in here and sure enough there it was this article about all different sorts of mange I said yeah that's what he's got it's it's now I know what it is it's mange and um but there was no 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 vet practicing in town at the time but I did hear, did hear about a government vet and rode my bike out to his place one day and knocked on the door and told him about my diagnosis and and um, you're 10 or so at this yeah, point yeah <laughs> something like that 10 or 11 um probably yeah, a bit older because the dog because dogs seem to get mange when they're around about seven months of age so yeah that'd be right he, he i got him when he was he was he was only three months so it wasn't long after that because it's dogs all dogs um are virtually born with if they can be born with they carry it but only a certain percentage it'll come out clinically so he had a particularly bad case and was the vet impressed with with your diagnosis? And... Oh, yeah. He said, oh, you know, more about it than me, Sonny. And, uh, but he said, I've got, some, got a tube of ointment here and, and that was a great salvation. A few years later, Pip had another close call with distemper. Was your dad's um, prognosis the same? Oh, he said, look, we definitely have to shoot him this time because they, they, they never recover from this. Yeah, you know, I've got my gun. Look, I'll just take him out and shoot him. He said, no, no, please don't. And because distemper was... It was a, it's a killer disease. And what is it, it? What are the symptoms? Oh, they get various forms of it. Uh, there's, they, they, they get it in their, in their chest and they get you know, really, really bad uh, pneumonia and they get it in their, their um, like an upper respiratory tract thing and they, they also can get um, uh, paralysis. And in this case, he, he had paralysis of his, uh, the trigeminal nerve, which is the one that opens and closes the mouth. So he, he couldn't close his jaw. And he was, he didn't, it wasn't killing him, but because I kept him alive somehow. But then there, there was a vet did start in town, so I took my poor old Pip out to see this this vet, and he he was as unsympathetic as my father. Well, he's a bit more sympathetic. Probably he said, "I'm really sorry, son, but you know your father's right. There's no there's no coming back from this. Your dog won't uh, recover. I'll I'll put him down, but I I just couldn't do it. So. I took this dog home with his streaming eyes and his slack jaw and I just nursed him for for weeks and bit by bit he recovered. Uh, even his jaw, I used to have to feed him, I used to poke, to poke food down his throat then move his jaw to, to make him swallow and massage his throat and then bit by bit it came back so it was, uh, and he recovered fully. The first school you went to in Albany was in the old military forts and then a yep. new school was opened in 1958. What distinction did you and one other boy have there, Rick? Oh, it was a brand new school and another guy and I were, were fighting, as you did in those days during during recess. If you, if, you know, if you want to have a bit of an argument with someone, there was nothing to, to just have a bare-knuckle fight in the playground. Anyway, we had a bit of a fight, I can't remember 
what it was over, probably nothing, but anyway, we got dobbed on and uh, the teacher said, ah, you guys were fighting, that's, that's outlawed, you're going to be caned. And you'll be the first boys to be... We'll solve that violence. I'll cane you. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that won't make sense, but yeah. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, it was, it was, it was really the, it was, I'd been caned before once or twice, but so it didn't, it really didn't really worry me that much, but it was one of the funniest things you'd ever see because um, the, it was a brand new school and this teacher raised the cane way above his head and uh, brought it down on my, went to bring it down on my mate's hand but he he didn't realise that these these new buildings had low ceilings, so the the cane sort of held high in the air, sort of just scratched across the ceiling, <laughs> lost all its force, and he just and when it was my turn, he just had to lift up as high as he could and bring it out as hard as he could. So it wasn't it wasn't the full force of his arm as, as he usually did. You know, it's really when they cane you, they really cane you. Generally, they should have taken us outside. <laughs> okay, I'm sure you didn't suggest it. No. Your mum was teaching at the Christian Brothers College. How did you help? her out with her work or think you were helping her out, Rick? Yeah, well, she was teaching kids that were a little bit younger than than me at the time, so she'd bring all the homework home and she'd, she'd say, oh, you know, the, you know how to do your sums and you know how to do spelling. Can you mark these mark these uh, these test papers for us? So I'd have, you know, great fun going through and I knew the, all the answers and, and I'd, you know, put you know, 7 out of 10 or 8 out of 10 or whatever and ticks and crosses it was it was um I didn't mind it was quite fun and I got to sort of know the names of the of the boys because they were like a different breed the, the the kids that went to the the Catholic schools were like a they were a different tribe completely For, foreign entities well they were they really <laughs> they really were and Catholics and non-Catholics sort of didn't mix in in those days anyway yes yeah, so I got to know their names and I've met them again in future life some of these guys and Tell the story. Quite often. How, how did you um, get in some trouble? Get your mum in some trouble with one of the comments that you left on yeah. one poor child's yeah. test paper. Yeah, Franz Shocker. Sorry, Franz, but Franz would just come out from Holland. There was a lot of kids in those in those schools. Our school and the and the uh, the Catholic schools were were migrant kids. So Franz and his family had come out from Holland, and his English wasn't the best. So his um, spelling test, he got. I think he got one out of twenty. So I said, one out of 20, Franz, your work is shit house. You wrote that on the paper. <laughs> yeah, well it, was, well, it was. It was pretty lousy work getting one out of 20. And, and how did Franz's parents feel about this well, they <laughs> feedback? Said, they said, Shizen, this is... <laughs> this so is did your mum have brothers? to own up that it had been well, her, her well, son doing the marking? Well, they did. They, they, the parents went to school and they were. they, were, they knew this was... It very it was a rude word in 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 English or Australian or whatever, and I said to the brothers, "You know, what is this?" And uh, my brother said, "I had to bring my mother in," and my mother said, "Oh, look, bloody little Ricky, he's <laughs> he's 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 taken things a bit too far." Here. So I was still allowed to mark, but I wasn't allowed to put any comments on. <laughs> well, hopefully, Franz made it through school. You did, and you went for um, an interview with the the public service board for a scholarship. What did you wear to that? Rick, back in 1965. Oh, yeah, it was what you were, everyone wore around Perth at the time if you were sort of a student or something, sort of little short short black you know, walk shorts, I'm called, and long socks and a, a little strip, black strip tie and a white white nylon shirt and, and all that sort of thing. It was, it was sort of the standard attire of 
of, in the day? Well, it, it, it worked out and you were given um, a scholarship to study vet science and had to come over to Queensland, but your first year was in Perth. What happened when you came home to see Pip at the end of that first term? I um, yeah, went back to Albany for the, one of the holidays and, um, yeah, my dog was missing. And, um, yeah, that was a very sad Sad, yeah, um, did you um, find out what had happened to him? Oh, yeah, I couldn't find him and eventually went to the local pound and they said, oh, yeah, we picked him up the other day, big red copy, wasn't licensed, yeah, so we uh, we gassed him uh, this morning, oh. too late. So, yeah, that was pretty pretty awful, but I never felt very guilty and, and to this day I sort of feel guilty that didn't have him uh, licensed and, and my father had... I'd let him off because he was he was probably he had, probably had separation anxiety so he was barking a lot and the neighbours were complaining so to he shut them all up my father just let him let him roam loose and yeah so he got picked up by the ranger and and that was the end of it and but it was the end of end of that era of my life and um, but he did teach me something taught me a lot about grief what kind of grief was that oh just yeah sort of unimagined because it was and most people with the first dog will feel that and I've seen it many times. And quite often people bring in an animal for euthanasia that come to the end of its days and quite often I'll see a, there's a teenager amongst them and I didn't know exactly how to feel. The teenager is just, you know, distraught. Podcast and broadcast. You're listening to Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Find out more about the Conversations podcast. Just head to abc.net.au slash conversations. So... Rick, after this experience of, of studying vet science in Brisbane in Queensland, you were bonded to the West Australian government for a number of years. Where did they send you first off? Uh, they could have sent me anywhere and because there were six of us all graduated end of 1971 and, yeah, the six of us and the other guys were, were a bit sharper than me and they picked the, the good spots like Albany and Esperance and Geraldton and wherever else and... Actually, Matt and I were, were left with the two choices, either Mora or Derby, so we tossed a coin and I got Derby and I had no idea really where it was except it was somewhere way up north and it was pretty hot and, and wild and it was sort of the so lucky. It was it was probably the third major bit of luck I had in my life. My first bit of luck was um, getting into vet. The second bit of luck was failing second year. So, And then the third major bit of luck was to get the short straw, so-called short straw, and get, get derby. What did the, the old stockman and, and people living up there make of you as a fairly fresh-faced young vet? Oh, fresh-faced? I was, they said, hey, they call me baby-face. Because <laughs> they said, you're not a vet, you're just a kid. You know, how can you come out here to our, tell us what to do? Because I was sort of in an you know, important position, we'd have to TB test cattle and tell them to, you know, we've got to shoot this one or whatever because it's got TB reaction and wouldn't wear it because I was so baby-faced. And, and I know why I was, because I'd had grown up in Albany, which has got a very, very, very lovely, kind climate, you know, very cool and cloudy. And then I had 
you know, five or six years um, sitting in lecture theatres out of the sun. So I get up there and I'm you know, 20, you know, going on 23 and I look like a 16-year-old. So I thought, oh, I've got to do something about this. I've I, I got to look like these guys because some of the 18-year-old stockmen had leathery skins and that. So I uh, refused to wear a hat for a while just so to try and, oh, no. try and cook, my, cook my complexion a bit, <laughs> try and toughen up. What did the Pilbara look like when you first drove through that part of the country on your way up to the Kimberley? Yeah, well, that was the most amazing experience the first time I pulled up outside the pub in, in Robin. And after dr- driving on mostly dirt roads from, from a bit north of Carnarvon, it was it was dirt in those days, and got up to, to Robin in the afternoon. On Saturday afternoon, I thought I'd get out and maybe have a beer and... And all I could hear was this roar. I thought, what's that roar? What's that noise? It sounded like a, a plane going overhead. And I realised that the roar was coming from this pub. It was the only pub for miles around and, and it was all single men, all screaming and fighting and roaring for a beer. It was just a, an absolute Wild West, Wild West place, the old, the old Vic in Robin in 1972. It's a different day today. It's a beautiful, beautiful place run by the local Aboriginal corporation. It's... Yeah, worth worth a visit. So this is your first experience of the Pilbara. Why did you decide that that was the place you were going to head after finishing your time in the Kimberley? Oh, well, I did a few trips driving through there and I could see all the potential opening up of uh, them building these towns, the brand-new towns of, uh, you know, Caratha was a brand-new town and, and Wickham and Dampy was, was still growing and, and also Port Hedland. And I thought, yeah, when I finished my bond... Because with the government, they put me through five years of university, so the deal was I had to work for them for five years, uh, which was a pretty fair um, fair exchange, so I had to set up my time with them. But I thought, gee, I think I'd like to go and start my own practice, but I'll, I'll do it in the, in the Pilbara. Did you fall in love with the country itself too? I mean, what's it look like? Oh, it's pretty raw. It still is. It's, it's, it's a beautiful country. It's just, uh, you know, pretty wild and... Free and raw, and there's reds and and greens and you know, all those sort of dry colours. It's a uh, yeah, spectacular countryside, especially when you go inland a little bit. When the and the the Karajini hills and gorges sort of you, you get to meet them. But all the north's beautiful. I love all the north, Kimberley as well. How much time did you spend on the road once you set up your own practice? Yeah, I'd, to get enough money, I'd, I'd have to go to. All the other little towns, because there wasn't wasn't enough work just in uh, in Robin or Caratha. Caratha was the major town, and so I'd do a couple of days a week there. Then I'd I'd go down to Onslow and even Exmouth, and then inland to to um, Tom Price and Parabadu and Newman even, and yeah, just all, all around those little places. On, on you know, Onslow was a little tiny town as well, so. I just um, rock up every, well, once a week or once a month, and I still do a bit of that even today. How did people know you were coming? Oh, I guess I'd put a notice somewhere. I can't remember now. <laughs> there was no, there was no, uh, there was no uh, Facebook or mobiles or anything in those days, but, uh, yeah, I must have just put it. Just turned up. And so where did you treat the animals, like in the back of your ute or, or where? Oh, the stations I'd call out to, with, but when I wanted to do a, a clinic in a town, uh, I'd usually go and see the, the local hospital and um, talk to the, the person in charge, which was usually the matron, and say, hey, can I borrow the um, borrow your morgue, the mortuary to... <laughs> Why the morgue? Oh, it was perfect. It was like a stainless steel slab, and it was a nice, clean environment, and there were fridges 
Sometimes they had bodies in them, um, but at least they had a fridge I could put my put my vaccines and everything for a little, little while. And uh, how did pet owners feel about taking their animals into the morgue? Oh yeah, they didn't seem to mind, but sometimes they knew that there was someone in the fridge, and I'd have to um, make sure. In fact, I had an awful experience once. I was in Port Hedland using the mortuary, and and um, I'd set up and had had people arrange to come. Uh, all afternoon, and the matron came in and said, "Oh, I'm dreadfully sorry, but the the coroner guy's arriving this afternoon. He's he's going to has to do a post mortem on a one of the occupants of the fridge, so you know you can't use it." And I said, "Could we have to thaw this body out?" And I said, "Well, oh, that's most inconvenient because I've got people you know coming every ten minutes or so." And anyway, I had a flash of inspiration. I said, "Well." You just got to thaw him out, don't you? Ready for by one o'clock. So yeah, as long as he's thawed by one, that's good. And I said, well, what say I just leave the the fridge door open? There was this big sliding uh, fridge thing, and we, we let him thaw out with me in here. So oh, okay, that should work. So um, we did that, but it was it was quite surreal. And people usually knock on the door, and I'd open the door. One person walked in without opening it, and they saw what was going on and, and fainted. Saw this body. If you weren't there helping these animals, who would have been the vet out there? Where would they have had to take them? Well, down to Perth or local doctors usually had a bit of a go at things and um, anyone at all, I suppose. But, yeah, I was the only vet for quite a long way. For I guess the next practising vet was in, in Geraldton, which is, oh, you know, what's that, 12, 16 hours away or or up to, to Broome and Derby, which is another, you know, about the same, I suppose. How did you first cross paths with the famous Pilbara Red Dog, the one they made the movie about? Someone had brought him in, brought this this uh, red kelpie in that had all these bite wounds, and so um, I was on my own. I just, you know, just treated it and said, here, take these, give him an injection, take these tablets, this will, this will he'll clean up, and off, off they went. And then a couple of days later... A different person brought in this dog, and I thought, "Oh, this looks like the dog I saw a couple of days ago." And uh, I said, do you, "Do you do you own this dog?" I said, "No, no, this is Red Dog. No one owns him, but he he belongs to everyone." Oh, okay. And then I, that's where I first met him, and then um, I sort of got to know him. And then different people would bring him in from time to time, and eventually he he seemed to know what I was about, and it didn't take him long, and he'd start to bring himself in. Uh, and I've only really? ever, yeah, I've only had, ever had two dogs do that, do that willingly, bring themselves in and present themselves, and so oh, yeah, what's up today? And and uh, and either nothing or, or there was something. And it was him and this dog called Branko he used to regularly come in. What kind of problems did Red Dog turn up with himself? Oh, well, he was always in fights, so he usually had uh, had bite wounds or you know different things. He was shot once or twice, and um, he just turned up. But eventually, he was just. He was just turning up socially. He just turned up because he decided on his on his uh, his list of people that he he didn't mind hanging out with. <laughs> How many of those stories featured in in the movie are true, Rick? I mean, did he really hitchhike? Absolutely, he was. Look, the the, the book on, by Louis de Benalis is is pure fiction, and the 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 film, which was a great film, Red Dog, first movie, fantastic, but it, it was basically fictional characters. 
but it was loosely, they were both loosely fashioned around a few legendary things that happened. But and that's just a few of the stories that that happened there. But there's there are so many stories about about Red Dog. How did he hitchhike? Like, what was it? What was it like to have Red Dog hitchhiker ride with you? Well, he'd either be there by my car when I was in Carrara and about to go back to Robin. He, he decided he was going to come with me. So, oh, okay, he's waiting. He'd just jump in. Or I'd be in the middle of nowhere and this shape had just hurtled out of the bushes and he just ran in front of the car with full expectation that I'd stop because he, he knew he knew that I used to drive this Sandman panel van and he, he, he knew it was me but he knew it was the car. But uh, and he did that to quite a few people. He just he would just say, oh, I know this person, I know this car, I'll just, they'll stop for me. And, and how would he let you know that he wanted to get out? Well... At the start with, um, I didn't get his subtle messages. Uh, then, then he'd give you one bark and he'd glare at you. Eventually, he'd just look and I'd say, "Okay, you want to get out?" He'd say, "Yep." And it could be in the middle of nowhere, absolutely in the middle of nowhere, halfway between Tom Price and and Raven. He'd he'd say, "Yep, I want to get out here, thanks." And off he'd go into the bush and do whatever he had to do. And <laughs> and um, that's yeah, there's another story there too, on where he turned up at a at a station. <laughs> what not unexpected? Well, yeah, these these people told me years later they, because you know there was a few stories of him being shot, and this uh, this lady said, yeah, um, I saved his life once. I was went out mustering on at this station in the back of Raven, and they were mustering sheep, and she was in the car with the father, and they had two sheep dogs. He said, "Would you look at that? There's a there's a third dog there. There's a there's a wild dog with our dogs. Where's my gun? Where's my gun?" So he went to get she went to get his gun because there was this third dog. And she said, because she'd at least been to town and she knew a bit about it, she said, no, no, Dad, don't shoot. That's, I think that's Red Dog. So I don't care who it is, he's, he's, he's a dead dog. He's on my station because that's what it was. If a, if, a, if a stray dog was on the station, it was going to kill sheep. But Red Dog was just wanting to help these other dogs muster sheep. So, um, yeah, she probably saved his life that day. Not everyone liked him. I mean, he liked being around people, but not everyone liked having him around. No, no, he was, well, he was just an alpha male, pretty smelly and, and um, he didn't really like women or children all that much. I always say that he, he fashioned himself on other single guys. He, he decided he was, he was a, a single bloke just like the other guys. He used to like fighting and drinking and socialising you know, in all male society. Because most of the camps there were all, all males and I'm sure he thought he was just one of them. What call did you, you get one night in 1979? Yeah, someone brought him in and he was um, uh, convulsing. My first thoughts was that he'd, he'd taken a bait. Um, I still never know exactly what it was, but he had he was uh, in a bad way. So I was able to stabilise him and improve him, help him. But, yeah, he, he didn't fully recover. And so uh, eventually I, I decided that he really should be put down. It must have felt a heavy responsibility, not just to any animal, but this this member of the community. Absolutely. And that was probably the overwhelming feeling. People always ask me, oh, you must have been so sad and whatever. And I, honestly, I didn't feel sadness as such because it was a job that had to be done. But I did feel this overwhelming sense that I'd uh, he'd, the community had entrusted him to me and I couldn't really help him. So I had to had to put him down. He didn't belong to anyone, but did Red Dog have a collar or tags? Yeah, yeah, he's um, he had a collar that the that the local guys made for him. In fact, it's another funny story. The the guys that 
at the railway workshops in, in Dampier called him Red Dog. The guys at Dampier Salt called him Blue Dog. <laughs> and, and they used to almost play this game. They'd, the original collar, the, um, the Salt guys would, would uh, write Blue Dog on it. And then you get over to the workshop <laughs> and they'd rub it out and paint over it and say, you know, red dog. So his, his original collar, they eventually compromised and the original collar, which I've still got, the little tag has got on it, it's got red dog and in brackets blue. <laughs> I've been everywhere, man. One day when you were in, in your practice at Roeburn, the circus came to town. What were you asked to do? What animal were you asked to help out there? Oh, there's a bit of a story behind it. If we got time, I, um, whenever the circus came to town, I'd always go down there and take my little family. I had some little kids at the time when my babies were growing up, and and we'd take them down to look at the circus animals, and we'd we'd sort of see if they needed any, any help. And this particular afternoon, as we walked in, the um, there was this monkey that was on a on a chain, and these little kids were teasing it, and uh, my um, wife was used to work with some of the the kids in town, and so she was telling them off and saying, "You leave that monkey alone." And no, the kids were backing off, and uh, and and, and I, we were walking walking towards them. Eventually, when the kids said, "Look at your little girl, Missy," and Louisa, my um, um, vet, her daughter is now a vet. She she was walking up behind this monkey, and I turned around just as she was about to wrap her arms from behind around this absolutely enraged monkey and and I saw it happening all in slow motion and I saw the monkey's mouth open to bite a face off and it had these big yellow teeth and I could see the whole thing happening. She was going to be disfigured for life from this monkey tearing her face off and somehow I I really think I levitated... I, I I just ran so fast or jumped so fast. Next minute I was picking her up just as the monkey sank its teeth into the front of her little corduroy <laughs> bib and um, and missed her face and just about it got her chest. But as I pulled her, pulled, lifted her up, and it's um, yeah, it's sort of its teeth sort of didn't embed, but but she left was left with these big marks over <sighs> over her, over her chest. Anyway, that was that uh, that story, and then um, that that night there was a great sequel because I heard the uh, police paddy wagon pull up outside. I thought, "What do they want?" Anyway, in the back of the paddy wagon was this uh, the same monkey, and he was having a bad day. This poor monkey, it was the same evening he'd went past the lion's cage and the lion reached out a claw and 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 actually degloved this monkey's arm from its shoulder to its oh. wrist. So I was presented with a monkey that nearly disfigured my child uh, with this a big bundle of skin around its neck, so around its wrist, rather. So, yeah, I had to stitch him, stitch him up successfully. But it was an unreal feeling to say, well, yeah, monkey, you were the one that nearly disfigured my child. <laughs> I'm glad you didn't let that grudge stand in the way of, of helping it at, at, at that time, no. Rick. Just a few years ago in 2018, you got an unusual letter. What did it say? Oh, yeah, well, my sister had, had, um, had been in touch. Or she came in to see me in Perth and said, Rick, I've been in touch with a woman in Queensland who believes you're her father and I've got good reason to believe it might be true. And so I opened this letter and it, it said, 
same thing, Derek, I believe you, it might be my father. My mother was so-and-so from you know, New Zealand and so oh yeah, I vaguely remember that, that lady and then there was a photo and I thought said to her, my sister, yeah, she's mine. <laughs> Hundred percent mine. You straight away you, you instant, believed it instant, instantly because I remembered the the girl and. Um, but you'd had no brief... sense that you'd you'd had a child together. You mm. didn't know that you'd had a child that had been adopted out. I didn't know, but I had a sense somehow. Somehow, it's it's one of the weirdest feeling that I always knew uh, that there was someone out there looking for me. I thought one day someone will find me. I don't know who it is. And anyway, who is this forty-five-year-old um, um, woman that? Um, I said, yeah, immediately, because she looked identical to, very similar anyway, to two of my other daughters. What was going through your mind, through your heart, on on the the flight to meet her for the first time? It was one of the most amazing days of my life uh, and almost indescribable. And the only way to describe it is, is to say anyone who's had a child when you when your baby's born, you get a newborn, and you first thing you do, you look at its face, and you look at this wonderful little tiny creature, and you think, "Wow, where have you come from? You're you are you know you are from me. You are part of me. You're part of my, my history, my ancestry, the whole thing." So that's with a with a tiny child, and the, you know their, a lot of their features and a lot of their characteristics haven't been developed. But here I was flying to meet a fully grown woman. A beautiful, forty-five-year-old daughter who had 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 developed all her own personality and character and features, and but it was still like going to see see your newborn baby, but it was a newborn forty-five-year-old, <laughs> so it was so unique and and that feeling will last with me forever. It was just so many, very few people have had that experience. People obviously, you know. Soldiers been out of the war and they've come home and there's a there's a you know the child a five or six year old but this was to see for the first time a someone of that age was it was quite remarkable. You've had red kelpies all your life, Rick. This yes. has been a dog, a kind of dog that you you're drawn to. Why? What is it about red kelpies that make them special to you? Well, it was my first one, so I, I developed a lot of rapport with them and. I've just sort of had them ever since. That's why there's, with my books, there's four books about four dogs and four different eras of my life. And I believe they're the, the smartest dog uh, out. And I've certainly developed the telepathy with all of them to, to quite a large degree. And that's something that I'm, I firmly believe in. I've had proof of it over and over. What was your first experience of, of communicating with your, your Kelpie that you had in Brisbane that made you think differently about how humans and animals might be able to communicate with one another? Well, well I always knew that she was easy to teach and she seemed to understand what I, what I said and what I told her and whatever. But it was one night when I was sitting in my little one-bedroom bed set in Tawong because this was just like a one, one door in, one door out sort of thing and I taught her to shut the door and just for fun, I taught her in a few different ways. I'd say, were you born in a tent? And the dog would, oh, sorry, I'm going to shut the door. I'd say, Kelly, yeah, it's cold in here. The dog would get up and go and shut the door. And so all my friends thought this was a great hoot, that this dog, you could sort of say these different things to. I'd even sort of pretend to shiver, and the dog would get up and shut the door. I thought, yeah, yeah, she knows what I'm talking about. Then one day I was sitting, I thought, oh, I did French as a kid, didn't I? 
what's what is it in French? So I said my best accent, Kelly, ferme la porte s'il vous plaît. And the dog got up and shut the door. And I thought, what? My dog understands French? How could that be? And and that's when I, the the, um, the light bulb went off, and I thought, okay, it was, it was, it was, uh, it was telepathy. Any, any any explanation for it? She she knew what I was thinking, and I've seen so many examples of that uh, uh, since. And in your experience, is this something that is a special gift that you possess, or is it something that people uh, are able to connect with but don't do with the animals in their life? We've all got the ability, and there's certainly uh, it's well documented that. Aboriginal people have always had that telepathic uh, understanding. They said, oh, Aunt Doreen up in Gove has passed away. I just, how do you know? I just know, you know, they just, they just know. So there's there's something that in those people, everyone's got it, but those people have, some people got it more than others. I'm sure all, all animals have got it. That's why they they communicate with each other in different ways. And I think most people who've got a pet know how the pet is just staring at them and, and the, the pet is trying to say something and the, the owner just doesn't know. And the animal's saying, you stupid human, don't you, don't you understand what I'm trying to tell you? Rick, I have to be honest, I'm terrified to think about what my cat's thinking. I'd rather not know, I think. Well, <laughs> as they say, dogs have owners, cats have servants. So. <laughs> Rick Fenny, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for being our guest on Conversations. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks, Sarah. Rick Fenny's book is Red Dog, and I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. I'm Naz. Hi, Naz. Uh, Last month I spent $65 on subscription services and I only watched one show. My own. And uh, this month I spent $85 on beauty products for my hair and skin and I didn't even get to show it off to anyone because I spent the entire month on the couch watching my own show. I'm Nazim Hussain, and in 2021, I presented a series of The Pineapple Project all about being frugal, and I learned a lot. But I've realised since that there are huge areas of my life that we didn't get to cover, and it's showing up on my bank statement, big time. I need help, quick. And by the sounds of it, you do too. So this season of The Pineapple Project, we're getting even more frugal. So let's tweak our streaming subscriptions. Budget out our beauty regimens. Date without debt. And heaps more. New Pineapple Project. Find us on the ABC Listen app or wherever you pod.